Welcome to the next episode of Infection Control Matters. It's Phil Russo here. Um, I'm joined by Martin Keaton. And together today we're going to chat to a very well-known name in the IPC world, um, particularly in the States, and that is Bob Garcia. Bob is originally a microbiologist um, who's worked as an infection preventionist for over 40 years, uh, particularly in New York, and um, recently retired, I believe. And uh, so we're going to have a chat to him today. So welcome, Bob. Thank you so much. Bob, thanks for joining. Thanks for your time. Um, Perhaps just uh, very quickly, um, you were mentioning before you've been in IPC for 40 years. Tell us about what it was like when you started. Well, originally, given that I was a microbiologist, I worked in that for uh, a couple of years, and I was approached about filling a position that at at that time was called infection control. Oh, the good old days. The good old days. And it was mandatory in the United States to have these programs. To be honest with you, I had uh, absolutely zero idea of what it was about and what to do. But they gave me an office the size of a closet and uh, had a desk in a pile of, uh, of, of microbiology uh, antibiotic susceptibility forms on the desk. And uh, I took over from there. I think in Australia they used to call them infection control officers and uh, they were well known for walking around the wards with a clipboard in hand. Um, taking notes. Yeah, infection control nurse over in the UK. And I had the end of a porter cabin. I was lucky. <laughs> You must have seen some big changes over this time, Bob. What would you think is is the biggest change that you've seen uh, during this period? Oh, my. I think probably the clarification and the institution of infection control programs across the U.S. that essentially not only were doing surveillance practices, in other words, identifying infections that occurred in patients, but instituting programs of prevention. And those prevention programs were molded, at least in part, on um, quality organizations that published guidelines that included uh, what we now call bundles. And that became, uh, you know, the vote probably 20 years ago. And given that it was tied in with federal reimbursement requirements, it really became mandatory for hospitals to do this. So, you know, They had to expand the programs by attracting new practitioners, training them, instituting the certification process, really coming up to speed into how we would translate the prevention practices across the entire healthcare facilities, particularly affecting the bedside worker who was really the one who was going to either, let's say, for example, insert catheter or maintain that catheter over the life uh, that it was being used on a patient. And those were what? <laughs> we could look at it this way, in which we didn't really have a lot of answers on both ends in the beginning. Uh, it was sort of like uh, if you observed a physician inserting a line, you would basically say, you know, that's really interesting. But we didn't have a lot of structure in the way that it really should be informally done. And that's what I think was one of the major things that changed was the standardization of practices across the United States, at least. And today, you know, we can't say that they're 100% equal on all terms, but at least from groups to new groups of physicians and nurses that are coming in that are new to the bedside and many of the other workers, because the expansion was not just to physicians and nurses, but to 
respiratory techs and all those others who handle patients directly and even into the world of reducing organisms in the environment. So it had to do with the environmental uh, service workers. So infection prevention became a program that affected uh, practice throughout an organization from top to bottom because it really could not be done without the support of administrators and, and managers in the organization. Now, Bob, part of the reason we contact you, I think, is because Phil spotted your very nice discussion paper that you just published with a group of colleagues. I think it was the American Journal of Infection Control looking at recommendations for change in infection prevention programs. So you, you talked about standardization. How, how did you all come together to actually decide what these recommendations were? What, what was the prompt to say, actually, we need to write some sort of discussion piece or, or article uh, about the recommendations and where we should go in the future? Well, I had the idea, you know, for the last year or so about um, writing an article such as this, targeting for the 50th anniversary of our profession, the Association of uh, Professionals Infection Control. And with uh, practitioners that we were associated with across the United States, including many who are corporate directors. And by that, I mean some of these directors oversee 30, 40, 50 plus hospitals in networks across the United States. During one of our meetings, we brought up the issue, what were the most important issues going forward now after 50 years of uh, evolution of the program and came up with 14 different categories that are included in this article. And I'm not here to tell you that we have all the, the answers by any means. But at least we addressed where we were with each issue and the recommendations of the authors. And there were a number of authors that are really some terrific people that were expert in some of these categories that are contained within the article to give us their thoughts about what the profession and the programs should include and consider over the next several years in order to face and help resolve some of the issues that uh, we pointed out. One of the authors, Bob, I noticed uh, is uh, somebody who we know. A special shout-out to Chuck Edmiston, who uh, we've interviewed on this program in the past. One of the things that you touch on in your recommendations relates to the standardisation or national certification process for infection preventionists. Just for those of us who don't know, what's, what sort of certification um, is there currently in the US. Practitioners are urged to become certified and it's through an organization called CIBIC, C-B-I-C, and they are uh, an independent organization from APIC itself. There are volumes that are published for infection control practice and the test that is required to be taken is a sampling, let's say, of the different requirements for practice in the United States that it would include things like disinfection and sterilization, infectious diseases, surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. And each person who is then considering this is required then to take the tests at a given time frame. And there are sites through the United States that they would, uh, once they sign up for it, that they could go and take that test. Once you do become certified, and, and it is a, you know, obviously a standard of how you pass depending on you know, the number of questions that are answered correctly, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I would say from experience that it's, it's a very rigorous test. And until recently, 
those that are certified would have to become recertified every five years and you'd have to retake that test. So it's not that we kind of got a, a free ride once I, I got certified, you know, like 30 years ago. You really had to become familiar with recent guidelines and information in order to become fresh for the test again. And within the last couple of years, the test has changed a couple of the requirements, et cetera, to attract more people to take the test. Uh, I can't tell you right now the percent of, of practitioners that are certified, but it certainly has gone up with uh, a lot of the changes that they've made. And certainly we encourage those that have not been certified to uh, begin the process. Sure. And, and there are many, many, many groups in the United States, subdivisions of APEC, that have their own uh, study groups for the certification process, which is very helpful. Would I be right in thinking, Bob, that you don't have to be come from a nursing background or a medical background to, you know, you're a microbiologist. So if you have an interest in infection prevention, you can go, you can get yourself trained and therefore be or credentialed or certified yeah. as an infection preventionist. Yeah, Would that be right? that's an, an excellent point. Over the course of my practice, I've mentored many, many new practitioners and not all of them were, were RNs. Uh, some were in public health, some I mentioned microbiologists, some had just science background, but they had an interest, interest in, in becoming infection preventionists and eventually they would qualify to take the test. So, so yes, that's a very valid point. And Bob, is it expected that somebody who works in the infection prevention team has that certificate or that's not a, a standard requirement? Well, it all depends on the facility you're working with. Some facilities have made it mandatory uh, and they give you a certain amount of time to take the test and become certified. The last facility where I worked, we had six practitioners, you know, for a facility that had roughly 700 uh, inpatient beds. At the time, only about half of them had, were certified. And during the course of time, two more became certified and there was only one more that was pending. And uh, they, they were now beginning the process of becoming certified. So the facility in itself encourages people in that job category to become certified. And some hospitals even have it, for example, as they scale your pay, that if you become certified, okay. they, they would uh, increase your salary as well. Right. But it's not a uniform thing throughout the United States. Yep. Okay. Now, when you're talking about standardization, Bob, you rightly concentrate on surveillance because that actually can take up an enormous amount of people's time. And um, we have the promise of automated surveillance coming. Where do you think we need to go with that? Because I, I notice also in your paper, you commented on the proportion of infection preventionists per bed is wildly out of date and most organizations are actually over that. Yep. So why do you think organizations have actually got more than what is generally thought as still the recommendation. And do you think if we can automate surveillance, we would maybe lose infection preventionists or would it free up their time to get more involved in improvement work? Well, uh, you know, part of what I think is in the United States a big concern here is the need to attract new personnel to fill in those positions of people that have either left the profession for one reason or another, and a number of people who have now retired, and how do you backfill these positions with trying to get either some people that are experienced, you would hope, or get people that you would commit to train. The numbers here are not in standard because there's never been a mathematical way of calculating based 
just on the number of beds because it's much more complex than that. A lot of facilities here, particularly the larger ones, have satellite facilities, clinics, standing surgical centers, endoscopy centers, et cetera, that need to have overview done in those facilities. And it's not necessarily for surveillance purposes. See, surveillance in the United States is largely based on what is mandatory metrics. So for example, if you have somebody with a central line uh, that's inserted while they're a patient in the hospital, it's required that you do surveillance to uh, rule out that they developed an associated bloodstream infection. That would not be the case for someone that is an outpatient, but you need to go into those facilities to determine whether they have good practices in trying to, for example, handling scopes. And that was you know, huge issues many times, not only mm. in the US, but around the world of how they were being reprocessed. So that's just one example of what we need to do. It's not just the surveillance component, but it's all these other prevention issues that we need to incorporate. You know, one of the most basic one, for example, is hand hygiene. And we don't have that standardized, for example, on how do we do monitoring for that. Some are direct observations, some are automated, but we do that because in certain guidelines, certain requirements, we need to get to a certain percent level. And how do you do that without infection preventionist involvement? People who, like you said, Martin, may be just doing surveillance, but they have don't have a lot of automation and they take a lot more time to do that. And then they, they don't have as much time to go out on the units to do observations of many important things. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, hand, hand hygiene surveillance always worries me a bit because if you have to hit a number, all you do is stand inside in the middle of the unit with a clipboard on saying hand hygiene auditor, and you get exactly. that number. And I, I, yeah, I, I do wonder why we spend so, so much time auditing, yeah, auditing the clinical practice, uh, basic clinical practice of other people. I don't know of exactly. any other profession that does that. Anyway, Phil, you want to pop in now, don't you? That's okay. I was just going to um, go back to the to the trying to work out the ratios uh, of IPC and, and bed dumps. I think actually it's, it's that focus is too narrow because, you know, I think it also, if I was doing that formula, I would also want to calculate in an epidemiologist, a microbiologist, a public health person, perhaps a behavioural scientist, mm. an ID physician as well. It's not just about the nurses. Um, so I think particularly now moving forward, um, the infection prevention landscape needs to think a little bit broader about the expertise that it, that it has at its team. Very timely, that, actually, because I spoke to Dr. David Weber last week at APSIC, and he's got a yeah. team of 20, half of whom are nurses, but the other half are behavioural specialists and you know microbiologists and other allied specialties who are all part of the team, and they all bring different skills. And so you would say for his, what, I think 1,500-bedded hospital, 20 infection preventionists would sound like a lot of people, but actually only half of them are infection prevention practitioners the other half are these other allied groups who bring in the the completely different skill sets so you know right. I, I think that's a nice new paradigm that he wrote about as well I, I don't know if you have you come across that program bob yes uh, i certainly know david weber and uh, they have a very uh, complete program but it's not to say that a lot of other institutions provide the resources like they would mm. and uh, unfortunately a lot of the programs do lack, for example, environmental specialists, which are, I think are very important. That's 
it's fairly rare. In fact, there are many institutions that don't have direct infectious disease physicians, uh, you know, from the clinical medical angle that, that, that would assist the programs. There are a number of hospitals that don't have somebody like that directly. And in fact, in the paper, you'll notice that we did mention that there is no standard for what their responsibilities would be within the program either. So that is made up by the institution itself as to what their responsibilities are going to be. So we have a long way of going about determining, you know, numbers and, and, and the backgrounds to personnel, et cetera. And hopefully in the next couple of years, that'll become uh, a little bit clearer. You arrived in your first job, which was a cupboard, and you didn't know where to go with the program. And we're still still teasing it out 40 years on. But, you know, as new paradigms come in, we're trying to think, how do these people fit in and where can they really help us? Because, you know, I, I'm not a behavioural specialist, but I've spent my entire career trying to change people's behaviour, failing miserably most of the time, I have to say, because I didn't have the <laughs> behavioural science skills. But uh, it's, it's now working out where they can fit into our program and, and not being precious about allowing other people to come and work in our specialist area because Phil and I and Brett Mitchell discussed recently we don't necessarily consider ourselves to be experts we, we think we're generalists but we there are lots of people out there who who can help us Bob can I ask you about the threat of antibiotic resistance then because like you and I when we started MRSA was the superbug we weren't worried about gram negatives particularly we weren't worried about yeah. resistant fungi particularly and now we have much bigger challenges than yes, the gram negatives are a challenge. Where, where, where does your group feel we're going to go with that? Well, there's so many um, actually different issues tied into just that that one category, Martin. It's certainly something that is becoming much more serious here in the, in the U.S. In the paper, we have one particular section on antimicrobial-resistant organisms. The lead author for that was Maureen Spencer. I think one of the first things that is brought up under that issue is really what truly are antimicrobial resistant organisms, because there are many guidelines and different organizations that talk about these organisms, and it translates into, for infection control programs, is what do we identify, what do we isolate, what do we address readily. There is no standard as to what in general those organisms are that we should directly address when they're identified. In the paper, there are a number of references to different sites that can narrow that down, but each hospital has to make that determination and actually list what if you if the labs come across an organism such as this, that these are the organisms that the infection prevention program should be aware of and then translate that into, for example, like isolation, et cetera, et cetera. I think one of the other things that is now beginning to have momentum is the early identification of these organisms. You know, the standard way of identifying a bacteria can take three, four, five, even more days is the standard culturing techniques that are done in microbiology. You know, in a number of my lectures I talked about this. You have, for example, acute care facility that receives a patient from a skilled nursing facility. Patient comes in for a, a UTI, let's say. They do the culture. And for three or four days, you don't realize that the person has a bacteria with a, an extended resistant pattern. 
And particular concern here in the U.S. is the development of the CREs, carbapenem resistant. The question from the infection prevention side would be, what happened within those first days that the person was admitted to your facility if they didn't have a past history where we would isolate them and treat them in a certain manner? So those three, four, five days could be that they were not isolated. And although we do have standard precautions, you know, the implementation of contact precautions is a, is a heightened category. And uh, what do you do with those patients, you know, after that? You know, some facilities have incorporated uh, things like decolonization, which is actually another section that was uh, written by uh, Dr. Septimus. And I thought that that was another really, really interesting area of discussion, because what do you do if you do identify a patient? How do you then actually handle them? And some of the studies that have been published, as you very well know, have shown that you can do you know, different categories of handling the patient. You could, for example, identify the organism and isolate them and do nothing else. Or you can then identify the organism isolate them, but then you begin a process of decolonizing the patient. I don't know how extensive decolonization practices are, but I think that this is a very important step in trying to implement these kinds of strategies. And when we talk about that, we're extending that kind of thought into areas like I think Chuck Edmondson himself had discussed about decolonization into surgical practice. So, you know, when we talk about that, it expands even more and more and more. Yeah. Uh, at our last facility, we started a program where we would start to decolonize patients that potentially have staph aureus or MRSA. And this was among patients that undergo, for example, cardiothoracic procedures where they were having uh, CIED procedures, implants, pacemakers, uh, and all kinds of different implants in the cardiac world. You know, we had had some significant problems and decolonizing those patients on a universal way. For example, not screening them at all, but simply decolonizing all the patients that were to undergo those procedures. And I think that that's something to consider. But on the other end, what I think that we lack tremendously in the field is something that is really critical and, and for the future of infection prevention practices is the identification, the linking of identified resistant organisms between patients. So, you know, on a Monday, I could have a patient's identified carbapenem-resistant Klebsiella, and, you know, a patient who had been, you know, housed with that patient or even on the same floor, now it was transferred to some other location. And a couple of days later, they come up with the same organism. The links that we have or the ability to do that is mostly in the United States on a manual basis. But I think that now our companies that are working on relating these organisms within the institutions by linking up phenotypes and actually tracking these patients within your institution. And that directly helps us out to determine whether we have an outbreak situation. Mm. And that kind of technology costs money, there's no questions, it's more money up front. But the benefits is tremendous in the long run to try to reduce the additional cases that you might get. And, uh, and, and with the United States reimbursement in terms of dollars from organizations like CMS, 
it becomes even more critical for us. And we'll talk about BSIs in a minute, if you'd like, and I'll tell you more about that. Um, and Martin, you, you uh, recently did a, um, a podcast about genomics with Brett. Perhaps you might want to pick that up shortly. But Bob, I just wanted to say that it's, it's also about knowing your local epidemiology as well. Um, at APSIC uh, last week, week, a week or so ago, um, Susan Huang presented data from the SHIELD um, yeah. project, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's a, a huge author, one of, the, one of the ones that produced the whole thing on uh, yeah. MRSA and, and the ICU study. Yeah, yeah. and they, they knew what common organisms were amongst their um, residents of their long-term care facilities, I think, and could track the movement around the state. So it was really fascinating. So they... I think they then instigated a um, chlorhexidine bathing regime for those residents and, and greatly reduced the incidence of MROs and, and that also helped yeah. manage their patients in, in healthcare facilities too. Yeah, it's a combination of, of the chlorhexidine bath and nasal decolonization. And Dr Septimus, by the way, was one of the co-authors with Dr Hung for the original study done several years ago in New England Journal of Medicine that showed, you know, what was most effective in terms of controlling MRSA among those patients. And it really was a universal approach. You know, don't screen, treat everybody. And it was the, the most economical and most effective uh, means of controlling MRSA. Yeah. Yeah, very impressive piece of work. I mean, you mentioned genomics, Phil. I mean, a, a few weeks ago, Brett Mitchell and I spoke to uh, Patrick Harris and uh, the infection prevention team, Belinda and uh, Trish, up in Brisbane. And they've been using whole genome sequencing with the infection control service. Uh, so they were able to track a multi-resistant gram negative and, and pick up all the contacts very quickly. But what it also did was show them that um, there have been isolating people for a a non-multiply resistant MRSA that was a community organism for years and actually doing the whole genome sequencing showed that once it got within the hospital, it didn't spread at all. So they actually were able to completely de-escalate contact precautions and isolation for these uh, MRSAs and it saved them over a million Australian dollars a year. So actually, if you can get yeah. it right, it will pay for itself. So, But it's, it's, it's having the money to put up front to demonstrate you're then going to get a saving that does make it a little bit more difficult. But that was a, that was a fascinating chat. That was an interesting point because in the article, we also have one of the issues was uh, decreasing contact proportions. And that was addressed by uh, Mark Oliver Wright here in the U.S. And it is fascinating because there are more and more hospitals that have reduced their isolation from MRSA strains, particularly those that are where they're just simply colonized versus whether they're infected. In a large number of studies, it showed that there were no additional increases in MRSA in the organizations. You have to look a little bit about context, about contact precautions, because in the U.K., contact precautions would be gloves and aprons, but also a single room. Whereas in the States, chances are they're going to be in a single room anyway. So the de-escalation of contact precautions maybe removes gloves and aprons for everything, but they're still going to be in a room on their own. So you have to, when you read that paper, you have to think, actually, you know, we're not talking about eight people in a bay with one person with MRSA in it. It's it's a slightly different context. Yeah. So we have to make sure we understand the full yes, setting when we're looking at that. Oh, yes. when we're looking at those. Very, very good. Um, Bob, I'm going to uh, wrap it up there. I'd like to thank you for your time today. It's been a great talk. Uh, Thank you for your service to the IPC world over the 40 years. Thank you for having me. I wish we had a lot more time, believe me. Well, we could always do another one or we could always catch up at a yeah. conference sometime. Yeah. We always struggle with trying to wrap up because we just yeah. we just love chatting about it. So Yeah, thanks to both of you. So thanks very Appreciate much, Bob. It. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Bob. Really enjoyed it. And uh, we'll catch you again on the next episode of Infection Control Matters. Thank you.